You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Let me welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist, uh, and I'm very glad to have with us remotely from Houston, Texas, uh, at the German Studies Association meeting, uh, senior fellow and director of the Society, Culture and Politics program, uh, Dr. Eric Langenbacher. Eric, welcome. Welcome from Texas. And uh, sitting next to me here, I have non-resident senior fellow, uh, uh, Klaus-Dieter Frankenberger, who is uh, known to many of you as the longtime foreign editor of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, uh, from which he retired just recently. Uh, Klaus, great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here in Washington with you, Jeff. Okay, so today's topic is the Zeitenwende, uh, one of those German words that is uh, has leaked into American usage because it describes the uh, security and political situation uh, in Europe after the Russian attack on Ukraine and the German response uh, to it. And so today we're going to talk through uh, some of those uh, steps that are most significant, how they have uh, reflect changes in German politics, how they are affecting German politics, and what it means in a transatlantic uh, context. I, uh, you know, I had originally thought maybe we would talk uh, today uh, about one of the most uh, successful German royal families uh, in the world, but we will leave um, the Sachs, Coburg, uh, Gotha, and uh, Battenberg families for another time, um, and instead we'll talk about defense, security, and German foreign policy. Uh, I think maybe a starting point is a speech given today, uh, that is September 16th, by German Chancellor Schultz uh, at uh, a conference of the German Bundeswehr, uh, in which he focused quite a lot on the Zeitenwende, and we'll come through to that in some detail. But maybe, Klaus, if you want to set the stage, you know how, how significant, how grave, how fundamental um, is this in your view? Well, our, thank you, Jeff. The Zeitenwende is both our, a look into the future, but also a verdict on our past failures. Past failures, we were naive about Russia, or we, did, we had the wrong priorities, we had the wrong assumptions. And this has been made clear by Russia's assault on the Ukraine. Um, the government turned things around. Zeitenwende is a major or, or bold step forward if it will be sustained. And I really, I'm not so pessimistic as some other commentators, I think it will be sustained. It will be sustained when it comes to energy. At the moment, as we speak, there's almost no more gas coming into the into Germany from Russia. We don't import any gas, any oil, we don't import any coal. So the energy aspect is dramatic. It will have also dramatic consequences for, for the German people for German manufacturers, but also the military side. Remember in the Zeitenwende speech in on uh, February 27th, uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, announced our major, major financing for the Bundeswehr. And my feeling is our, uh, he, he has meant what he said at that time. And he followed up on his speech you alluded to a minute ago. Um, the Bundeswehr will get better equipment. The Bundeswehr will play a much, much larger 
role than in the past for territorial defense and and uh, and um, for its NATO allies. Now, not all will be, is is okay. Or this was a long-term process, but all the steps that have been taken, at least the major ones in energy, foreign, and defense policy, go in the right direction. Now, incidentally, one must say, of course, that Scholz's party, the SPD, was not innocent um, in having the Bundeswehr being downsized to a third or second, at least second-rate force in Europe, you know. Or no spending orgy, the foreign minister Gabriel said at the time, or referring to the NATO's 2% goal. Uh, now, yes, there is a fundamental change in Europe's security architecture, and Germany has to respond. Uh, what I found also interesting, again by Scholz, the affirmation of a leadership claim in Europe, not just in terms of the EU, which is what you would usually expect. We are a major power in Europe, the anchor of the EU, but also in military terms. Now, this is something something new, I find, and I feel, or my hope is, that this will be now the guidepost, the the rail, the the, the guiding lines for this decade and the next the next one to come. Very good, thank you, Klaus. I think, and I think to mention you know, a couple of the facts, the data points that uh, that you referred to. Um, of course, a hundred billion Germany has committed to um, uh, recapitalizing the Bundeswehr. That's in a special off-budget fund. Uh, Chancellor Schultz also um, has committed to uh, achieving the two percent of GDP NATO spending target. So we're talking about uh, not only a hundred billion that will go to specific procurements, but um, uh, you know spending that will on average amount to something like 75 billion euros a year if you take the 2% measure. Now, Eric, I wanna turn to you um, and uh, talk a little bit about the transatlantic uh, component uh, uh, of this, and in particular, American reactions. Um, go ahead. All right, thanks. Uh, before I do that, I do wanna kind of reiterate something uh, that was just said. Uh, I really think that, the, you know, we talk about Zeitenwende, and now it's become this kind of conventional accepted term, but it's supposed to capture something truly, I don't know, transformative, epochal. And the fact that all of a sudden, like decades of debate, decades about hand-wringing, about whether Germany can be trusted with an army, whether Germany should take on a leading role, especially in security and defense, it's just... It seems like that debate is over. It seems like it, that it's now just taken for granted that Germany is going to do this, and everybody seems to be very supportive of this. So, you know, I hope that people don't have uh, "be careful what you wish for" response at one point in the future. But it just—it really struck me how we, we're not talking about that anymore. It's—it's it's kind of expected and accepted. And I think that Schultz's speech today, saying that very explicitly, really kind of captured that. You know, when you look at the kind of American or the kind of Washington establishment reactions to the Zeitenwende, you know, honestly, there, there isn't that much to kind of analyze because everybody is very supportive and happy that the Germans are finally kind of stepping up. I mean, if you look at, you know, folks on the conservative side of the spectrum at the Heritage Foundation, for instance, or at the American Enterprise Institute, they're just as supportive of these changes as people at more liberal or liberal leaning places like Brookings, the Carnegie Endowment, AICGS, not that we're anything left or right, but everybody seems to be very supportive 
of these kind of changes. You know, what is interesting is how it always comes back to U.S. domestic politics. So some of the conservatives are like, see, Trump was right. And they're finally doing what Trump wanted them to do. And well, obviously, people not on the right are, you know, saying, well, you know, administrations have been asking for at least 2% for a long time. You know, I can remember these discussions were already very salient in the 1980s, if not even before that, with, you know, the Americans wanting the Germans to kind of step up more. When so there seems to be last, just quite a lot of... spoke about Lustenteilung all the time. Is yeah. The, debate, uh, that, the, 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 the catchphrase, uh, that in those days, Lustenteilung. Yeah. I know, like, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, right? Mm. Um, so uh, that's really interesting. I will also say, though, that as supportive as the American establishment seems to be uh, towards this change in Germany, I, I think they want to see that the Germans are going to put their money where their mouth is, so to say. So there, there's a little bit of concern, a little bit of skepticism that the Germans will actually be able to come through with the implications of the Zeitenwende. But it's an incredibly positive response overall. One of the most positive responses that I've seen probably in my lifetime with almost consensus as to this being the best course forward. Okay. Thank you, Eric. And uh, so as we as we dig into this a little bit more, I think one um, aspect where there has still been some persistent uh, criticism, not only from the United States, but all, from some quarters of the United States, not from the Biden government itself, but from observers, and also criticism from Germany's uh, partners in Central and Eastern Europe, and especially part, uh, criticism from the government of Ukraine, uh, including from President Zelensky himself, has been uh, Germany's um, uh, reluctance to uh, enhance the quality and the quantity of uh, arms weapons that they're providing to Ukraine. Um, and I think that in some ways gets at uh, this the the nub of this uh, will Germany deliver on these on these promises? And I think we need to pick this apart from a couple of different directions. The first is for many people when they talk about uh, Zeitenwende, they talk about a sea change in German policy. It is I it is the same thing as saying supporting Ukraine militarily. Um, clearly, Olaf Scholz. His defense minister, Christina Lambrecht, do not see it this way. But that is the way it is seen by many outside observers. And I think that distinction is important for us to keep in mind because uh, you know earlier this uh, this week and, and today especially, uh, Olaf Scholz made it quite clear that what he has in mind when he talks about this sea change in German security policy, it is that territorial defense collective NATO defense, collective uh, defense in a NATO context, that is the first priority of the Bundeswehr. And as he put it, um, everything else is subordinate to that. Now, you might make an argument that uh, supporting Ukraine militar militarily um, uh, is actually another way of providing for collective defense in NATO. But that is not, I think, the way the German government is defining things right now. So I think that is an important thing to keep in mind. What the government is talking about is a recapitalization of the Bundeswehr, um, uh, but that is a different task from uh, supporting Kiev. Do you agree, Klaus? Um Yes, yes and no. I mean, remember where we've been or seven, eight months ago. We were talking about, and I say this a little bit in, in support of the government. I do know, of course, the, the question about the tank 
to deliver tanks. I didn't know that. Well, let's separate it for a while. Remember eight years ago, uh, eight months ago, where we were? We were thinking of sending a couple of helmets to the Ukraine. We were thinking of sending a field hospital and the rest said, oh my goodness, don't get involved in this militarily. militarily. Now we have sent, do not cross a red line. Now we have sent big guns, uh, multiple rocket launchers, air defense systems, uh, small or small armored vehicles, and so forth. So on this line, as Schultz has correctly said, we have broken with decades of state practice not to send arms into crisis areas. Now, this is all gone. Our, the, the, the sticking point now is, and in, insofar, criticism, especially by Poland, is somewhat impertinent, I find if not a little bit outrageous, Germany is not a tr trustworthy ally. Uh, I, I, I think this is a little bit over the top. Correctly, the question boil down, boils down today, are, do we send our, our, the special asset that Germany can offer, the Leopard tank, the Leopard 2? Mm -hmm. This is something are that the Ukrainians want and have asked for quite a bit, uh, quite a long time. Germany has wavered a little bit, is not so sure about this one, because this would really be a qualitatively new step in this, in what we do. I'm sure if we speak, let's say in four, four weeks, the question will be settled mm -hmm. in the right direction. Our Germany wants to do this with others in a joint effort, particularly with the United States. I would have no qualms about this if the U.S. sends some Abram tanks and we send a couple of Leopard tanks. This would be something the German the German government in this on on this issue needs a little bit of tutorship or gives a little bit of cover, internal legitimacy. I would think. Or mm -hmm. what I would not be surprised at the end of the day, in light of the 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 mind-boggling Ukraine advances, that in four weeks we are here. I think that's an important point because we've seen throughout the conflict um, uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, uh, Germany uh, steadily uh, expanding the scope and the magnitude of its support to Ukraine um, and doing things that in some cases it had ruled out just a few weeks before. So I think this is a dynamic situation um, where uh, where this is uh, always. Yeah, I, I do not uh, question the inconsistencies of the German attitude or the German government's behavior. No, or 5,000 helmets, and then we sent the the, uh, the leopard tanks eventually. And, you know, is its hesitation, its reluctance to something. Because early on, let's be honest, let's be honest, like in most other Western capitals, are the German government and probably also the, the German public large thought this is over within a week. Mm -hmm. It is not over, and we are uh, impressed by the stunning courage of the Ukrainians and the Shanza setting himself. This gives him some cover, you know, to deliver on the military military side. I think that's important, and I think we'll come in a second to um, to the assessment of Russia um, that now prevails in Germany. But uh, Eric, let me turn uh, turn back to back to Houston uh, and uh, and uh, solicit your uh, perspective. You know, I, I I think it's really interesting, and Jeff, I really agree with the way that you put it that Schultz is about the recapitalization of the Bundeswehr and not necessarily about sending arms to Ukraine, because that's also in you know his and his government's self interest because. I think one of the problems with the Zeitenwender rhetoric is that everybody thinks that, well, you know, you've rhetorically changed tack 
and now you can deliver immediately. But we know that there are, I mean, it's not just a policy issue, it's also a logistical issue in terms of the Germans doing anything to kind of improve themselves. You know, maybe this is the opportunity we can bring of the procurement process in Germany, which has been highlighted as a real stumbling block to any kind of immediate kind of response or action that apparently uh, the Germans have one of the most bureaucratic, one of the slowest procurement processes in the world. And I know we've had some 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 visiting uh, politicians come through Washington, D.C., and they, they have discussed this. They're aware of the of the need. But, you know, it makes it makes sense. Like, it's very clever of Schultz to say, oh, no, 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 it's not about immediate support for Ukraine. It's about a medium and longer term regeneration and recapitalization of the Bundeswehr that gives them kind of breathing room to fix these lower level and important logistical problems that also seem to be quite, quite um, challenging right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, if if we look at, I think there are a few interesting aspects of the way the chancellor has, has approached this. First, as Klaus just mentioned, um, there is a consistency here in that Germany is always looking for ways to act in concert with others. And usually not wanting to be uh, the first to take any step, um, and so uh, the the phrase "keine Alleingänge," which we hear very frequently from uh, from Schultz and from others, um, and also explicit reference from the Chancellor to his conversations with the U.S. President Joe Biden uh, on uh, on this on this uh, front, and you know implicitly what he's uh, saying is Biden agrees with me. He doesn't quite put it that way, but that's clearly the implication. Um, so that is a, a bit of consistency. But uh, I think it, there I see two divergences um, uh, from recent uh, German government approaches uh, that uh, strike me. The first is if you look at the way uh, Schultz talked about Russia, including in his speech today, where he may have, that had been maybe the most explicit he's been, he said, um, Putin's Russia defines itself as our adversary and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Um, I think that is artful because he clearly puts the burden on Russia for Russia having um, you know, uh, veered away from any pretense of partnership with Germany or with uh, with uh, European partners. Uh, so in other words, it's their fault. Um, but also it is not going to change for the foreseeable future. I think that is an, uh, you know, a, an important thing to look at and uh, will be significant. The second thing is the way Schultz has associated himself personally um, with with these policies. Uh, and, and there's even a line in uh, in his speech today where he says, you can measure me, you can evaluate me um, on the basis of uh, these these promises. Um, so I, I think this is he's going further than I can remember Chancellor Merkel, for example, um, having gone in in her commitment um, to increase resources to the Bundeswehr, she did um, since 2014. Um, but but but, but this and and so that I think is a, is is an interesting aspect of Schultz's response. Well, this is true. He made this a, a personal thing, and by doing so, taking the much criticized our defense minister Christine Lambrecht a little bit out of the of the firing line, so to speak. That is his personal, if you will, his legacy almost. Mm-hmm. It's already now his his thing. I stay with the Bundeswehr, we will reinvigorate the Bundeswehr, we will capitalize the Bundeswehr, we make this European, Europe's most, most the best equipped army now, 
It's certainly at the moment, it's not the best equipped army, though this is for the long haul, but it's a statement. Uh, and uh, the opposition, opposition leader, Friedrich Merz, I, I'm not sure how he sees it, but uh, I'm, uh, no, I'm, I'm sure he sees it almost the same way. I mean, that's what we are, that's what we have to do. I found something else in his, in Scholz's speech today, remarkable, because, and I also think this is good that he said that it's because it's so pertinent. The Zeit Amendment doesn't only apply to money and material equipment. Uh, we need a change, it's a strategic change in our thinking, how we relate to Europe, how we relate to Russia, and we are, and this applies also to the public. You know, the public were thinking, ah, oh, we all got friends with Russia, and of course, and, and a few obstacles to go away. Now, this is a fundamental break with generation of pol politicians, policymakers, and the public of how we relate to our how how we relate to us others and how we see the Bundeswehr and Germany and the uh, uh, the anchor power in Europe. This is this is different. Remember, um, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, we thought we are all Ukrainians now. Now this consensus is eroding a little bit, but he said, "Well, it's necessary. We have to think beyond our uh, so our borders. We have to. Th we are not this this big Switzerland that many of us." has wanted for us. There is no security at the moment with Russia. That's only security against Russia and before uh, against Russia. This is fundamentally different from the rhetoric we heard just, let's say, a year ago. Mm -hmm. A year ago. This is really different. And such the excitement presents a shock, but also an encouragement to now do strategically what many of of us in the think tank and journalist world, but also our, amongst our partners have asked Germany to, to do, become A, a normal power, and B, assume the responsibility that comes with your, with your economic might, with your economic power, and with your status as the key power in Europe. And here he says, okay, I think he said, we have learned this lesson. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the hard way. Eric. You know, I was just thinking for a second because we brought up kind of public opinion and have, having to bring public opinion on board to this kind of, you know, rethinking. And uh, I immediately thought of East-West differences within Germany vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, Eastern Germans are, are um, not of the same opinion to the same degree as Western Germans are right now, where there seems to be a lot more residual sympathy or, or even economic self-interest in the relationship with Russia. So I would what what I would worry about. I mean, that's that's one of the things when when war happens or when there is this kind of massive reorientation of policy is you're going to have all sorts of unintended and unexpected consequences. So what I would worry about is if the government really does, um, I guess, buy in to this. I guess it would be like a geistige Zeitenwende, right? Like the the moral and the intellectual. Um, um, shift in stance towards Russia as well, that that could also have very kind of uncomfortable consequences on German politics. And if you bear with me for a second, you know, one of the ways that the kind of East-West difference is manifesting itself right now in general, but also vis-a-vis -vis Russia, is in support for the AFD, right? The AFD mm -hmm. has had um, probably the most controversial stance towards the Zeitenwende, has been very critical towards many aspects of the Zeitenwende, has said, of things relativizing the Ukrainians and the Russians, blaming the West as much as Putin for what's happening in Ukraine. And that's still resonating with Eastern Germans. If you look at some of the polls, the AFD is up 
in some cases, three or six percent beyond where, what they got in the 2021 Bundestag election in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, where the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 pipelines end, the AFD is up over six percent over the 2021. In Saxony, I think they're up above 3% and things like that. So I would be worried, and maybe this is one of the reasons why German politicians have been a little reluctant to, to buy into the Geistige um, site and Venda as well, because this is going to exacerbate east-west temp, uh, uh, tensions at home and empower the AFD, which the you know mainstream parties have, have not been able to figure out how to kind of combat. So mm -hmm. I don't know. There's going to be all sorts of of uncomfortable consequences to um, all of the, the parameters of this site and if they really do um, start to comprehensively play themselves out. Well, and that's you know it, you you highlight a point there, which is I think most of the discussion of of observers of German politics has been when we think about contestation um, uh, and uh, in this foreign policy change, of course, um, it has been about the difficulties within the social democratic party um where you have uh, you know a number of stalwart party stalwarts who um have been reluctant to fully embrace um the uh, the ideas of 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 the Zeitenwende as Schultz has uh, dis described it um uh, but i think you highlighted an important issue that that it you know it may be just as significant uh, as we look forward about the regional the, the east west difference uh, on this um uh, klaus what do you think about that well uh eric is right to uh, to point out that in the east there is more sympathy for russia and and less sympathy for the Zeitenwende but uh, and there is a East-West dimension to this whole thing. Uh, that This is definitely true. But then we should not exaggerate the the gains by AfD, um, I would think, are the majority of Germans, and this makes up to, let's say, 70 to 80%, still think Russia is the aggressor, and we are ready and prepared to pay a price in terms of uh, higher gasoline prices, in terms of higher electricity prices. This is still the case. Now, the Germans are worried about inflation. You can, it's are easy to understand. And this will be a winter, probably, or a fall of discontent. Some have called it already, uh, or already expect a winter of rage. I don't think it will get that dramatic, but discontent will build up. It's inevitable. So the, the consensus behind the side vendor rhetorically and are in real terms will erode somewhat but it will not collapse mm -hmm. i'm sure about this and the left the hard left which is even more in parts even more sympathetic towards russia i mean sarah wagenknecht gave a terrible speech on the floor of the of the bundes uh, of the bundestag you know really accusing the west of economic warfare against poor russia uh, though that russia had no other choice than to do the bad things it, it, it had already done. It's ridiculous. It's irrelevant. It's politically irrelevant. Relevant is the AfD because, of course, more than voters, more voters are attracted by this. But we do not speak about more than 20%, 15%, sometimes even less. So the, the, uh, vice versa, 70 to 80% are in support of the government. Mm -hmm. Now, still, still. So let me um, uh, cast the uh, the view um, uh, ahead. Um, you know, what what should we be looking for? Uh, how will we know whether these uh, commitments 
uh, that have been underscored repeatedly, including in in quite direct terms this morning by Chancellor Schultz, uh, are being fulfilled. Um, I'll turn uh, to Eric and Klaus, but let me offer a couple, two observations that I think will be um, important. The first is, you know, we have a national security strategy. Uh, which uh, will be issued by the German government uh, probably by the end of the year or it, it, at the latest in the first quarter of 2023. Um, and so I think we uh, we will want to see how that is reflected in that document. How does this kind of whole of society um, uh, reaction to the security challenges in Europe um, uh, get expressed there and what kinds of government uh, actions flow from it. So that's in the medium term. But also I, I would highlight one thing that the chancellor pointed out in a speech he gave uh, in Prague a couple of weeks ago, in which he talked about the future of Europe, uh, but also it, it, that he returned to uh, today. And that is um, his uh, assertion not only that Germany must be, as Klaus said, Germany must become the best equipped armed force in Europe. Um, that's a very clear and explicit statement. But then he also said that he wants to see more European defense cooperation and for Germany to play a leading role in European air defense, um, which is a critically needed capability. Um, Will Germany uh, take on this role? What practical steps uh, will the the defense ministry and uh, and the German government take in order to realize that commitment the chancellor has made? Um, other things that you think we should be looking for to kind of measure the the successful uh, progress of uh, of the policy response in the Zeitenwende, Eric. Well, I think you've kind of mentioned um, uh, most of it, but we have to also monitor actual spending. Um, I've seen some kind of U.S. analysts being a little skeptical that they're going to be able to actually sustain this two um, uh, percent of GDP pledge that they have. So we'll have to monitor kind of spending levels. Um, but, you know, I kind of wanted to um, add something else uh, to the discussion as well. Um, especially with the kind of European context. I think that the European Union context is rapidly deteriorating. If you look at what happened in Sweden in this recent election with the um, Sweden Democrats doing so well, if you look at what's happening in Italy and um, how there's going to be a right-wing um, person there. So, you know, I guess one of the other ways that we can check to see if the Zeitenwende is, is real is if despite this deteriorating, deteriorating environment in Europe, um, if they can still stick to some of their pledges, I guess that would be kind of a win. Um, I certainly don't envy Schultz with all the challenges that he's currently facing and will face going forward in the future. So I don't know, stormy waters indeed. Yeah. Klaus. Um, Eric uh, pointed to a, a, a new dimension in our discussion, the European, the larger European picture. Now we have our changing of the guard in the UK with the new prime minister but we not really know yeah i mean she is hardline on ukraine that's for sure but is basically untested as a as a national leader we haven't heard much recently from macron to be honest yeah. to be honest he's uh, also facing a difficult domestically domestic political situation we are probably will have uh, a hardline right-wing a prime minister in italy in a few weeks and so we have germany this is probably the moment our smart politics where you really affirm German leadership. I mean, we all can discuss the shortcomings, the inconsistencies, 
rhetoric if rhetoric matches ex, uh, actually political uh, action and so forth. That's all clear. But our, I would say to our partners, take us by our word, take the government by its word, the opposition leader, take Schultz by his word, and then try together, form a sort of coalition in the willing within NATO, within the EU, are not uh, not being orthodox about who's doing what, but do it together. And this will enable us domestically, I would think all of us domestically, to overcome the resistance, doing this and that. And I come, it, come, it comes back at, the, at this moment to the question of what kind of weaponry do we really send to the Ukraine to, to bolster its advance, to sustain it. So eventually, eventually, sometime next year maybe, when there is willingness on both sides to enter into negotiations, the Ukrainians start not from the weaker point. That's is clear to me that this is Im, Im, imperative now about what all we, whatever we talk about. And one thing that Scholz mentioned in his Prague, Prague speech, what he mentioned in today's speech was, well, folks, for decades, again, we had the most restrictive weapons export guidelines, and we didn't even export to, to partner countries in NATO, my, my friend. Uh, this is over. This is our reaching out to France, but in particular, this is reaching out to the UK. Let's do something together here. Now, we are breaking with decades of our history. Again, that's Seidenbender. It's a change of an era. Though the shock that Russia's assault post are, is eventually probably not just sobering, but will lead for us to something good. Sorry, Jeff, can I just add one, one other thing? Sure. Um, which I think is pertinent here, but it also harkens back to the transatlantic dimension and what folks in Washington, D.C. are saying. What I forgot to mention is that uh, there's also a lot of American analysts that are like, oh, thank goodness the Germans are stepping up because now we can actually turn to what we want to turn to, which is China yeah. and kind of the Asian Pacific kind of realm. So we finally have the Germans stepping up. We don't have to worry so much. I don't want to say that the United States is going to withdraw because that's not you know, conceivable, but, you know, certainly it'll be less of a priority if they can count on the Germans. So part of me thinks that, you know, whether the Germans want to or not, the other thing too, by the way, is that, you know, there was what a white paper in 2016, there were other kind of pronouncements of policies in the years before that. And the common perception is it was rhetoric and the Germans didn't come through with what they at least had, had um, intimated in those kind of um, policy mm -hmm. statements. But this time might truly be different because the structural constraints around Germany will not allow them to kind of go back. Right. And I do think that you're going to see pretty strong pressure coming from the Biden administration and, you know, future administrations as well to, you know, make the Germans, uh, you know, stick the stick the landing, so to say. Yeah. Well, I think what we've been talking about today is, uh, as Klaus just uh, described it, the biggest uh, reorientation in German policy in decades, and uh, it is, uh, you know, it will have enormous consequences for Europe, for the transatlantic partnership, and of course uh, for uh, for Germany itself. 
Um, and we've highlighted some of the things to watch, um, uh, the factors that uh, the German political system has to grapple with, uh, the, the real uh, obstacles that they've uh, decided to overcome. Um, and uh, I, I think we will uh, certainly keep uh, our eyes on this, and I look forward to future uh, discussions as we assess the implementation uh, of these kinds of commitments. So uh, thanks uh, to you, Eric, for being uh, being with us from Houston. Uh, I hope you have a productive uh, visit to the German Studies Association Conference and look forward to hearing more. Uh, thanks to you, Klaus, for being with us and for being in Washington. Um, and uh, we look forward to having all of our listeners with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.